Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Let Them Eat Cake. This episode we speak to two current members of the Women's Protection Unit or YPJ, an all-female militia that is closely affiliated with the YPG. Our guests are two international fighters who travelled to Rojava to participate and learn from the revolution. The YPJ was instrumental in defeating ISIS in Syria and aided in saving over... 10,000 Yazidi peoples from genocide in 2014 when they liberated them from ISIS. We cover what the YPJ is, we cover their philosophy and ideology, as well as discussing the path taken by these fighters to get to where they are today. I unfortunately have to inform you that after a discussion among the cooperative and various expert advisors that an important section of this interview had to be cut and recontextualized. This pertains to the allegations that Turkey had violated the Chemical Weapons Convention. There is enough visual evidence to warrant an investigation. Any reference to Turkey's use of chemical weapons in South Kurdistan has been slightly altered to reflect a more general statement. We ask that everyone push for an OPCW investigation into these allegations. YPJ International has posted some of this visual evidence on social media for anyone who wants to see it, but regardless, we stress that we must push for an official investigation into these alleged war crimes. And as always, we are 5th Gen, an information warfare cooperative that aims to shed light on things those in power want to be kept in the dark. We want to give a voice to the voiceless and give people the information they need to thrive in a world that tries so hard to starve you of it. I am Jack. My co-host is John, and we hope you enjoy the show. We have a weapon more powerful than the British Empire, and that weapon is our refusal to bow to any order but our own, any institution but our own. Okay, maybe I start. So my name is Runahi. I'm from the eastern part of Germany, and I'm here for two years now in Yepeja International. Yeah. My name is Raparin. I also come from Europe and I also spent the last year a little bit more in Yepisha International. So you're pr pretty relatively recent members. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> what, what, drew, what drew you in? Um, before I was already in the yeah, militant left in uh, Germany and in the anarchist movement. And, you know, I like always had a kind of journey, kind of search for the right way to fight, to struggle, the right way how we can like get a revolution, change the world, change society. And after a while I was more like, like I faced that this way we are going in the German left is like actually leading not to, to something like to a real change or like giving answers to the problems of society. And yeah, it's, it stops at liberalism. It doesn't really yeah. go further. Yeah, and especially also as a woman, like especially in more militant structures, it's really still male dominated and uh, the way how we fight, the way how we act, like how we um, organize each other. So I was looking for answers to all these aspects, all these problems, and especially uh, I want to find an answer to the question, how can I fight as a woman? Uh, how does a revolutionary struggle look like? Um, where women can really not only play, playing a leading role, but where the whole struggle is more connected to women's identity. Well, what about you? you how, how did you get involved? Uh, what drew you in? So I was also involved in left radical uh, anarchist feminist movement. And like I always had some contradictions. Like I really always could not understand how we can really build a movement that is really to aim to build a revolution. For me, activism was not enough. Like, I didn't want to split up my life being an activist during the day, but then, like, not acting according to my values. This question of values was really a big question for me. Like, how can we teach society to live according to values that enables a free society? So I was facing a lot of contradictions, and I think it was around the time of Afrin in 2018 when Turkey attacked Afrin. I got to know about the Rojava revolution. And I was reading the books of Abdullah Öcalan, and it was really fascinating to me. Like I, for myself, as a young woman from Europe, I was reading like a philosopher, like from the Middle East, a man, and he was giving answers that I was always searching for. Like he had really good critics on anarchist movements that I always had, but I couldn't explain so much. So I had more like an ideological connection to the revolution in Rojava. 
And then I was just reading a lot and asking myself, what is this revolution? Because it was always said it's a woman's revolution. And I have to say at the beginning, I was doubting like how much is propaganda, how much is really true. And for me then, like the only way to find out is was to come to the revolution. And why I joined the Yepeche is because Yepeche, of course, it's a military structure. We fight with arms. But first and foremost, it's an ideological um, strength. So our aim is really to liberate women and to be able to liberate others. And for me as a woman growing up in a capitalist system, it was always a need to, to find myself, like who am I, how can I liberate myself? And in Yepeche, I found those answers. I also like, um, cause I knew about it beforehand because I was like a journalist, but I, I didn't uh, really understand what it was about until Afrin happened. I really identify with what you said. Did it meet your expectations or did it exceed them? <laughs> I had really great expectations for this revolution. It was like, I really thought now I will go to the place where I always wanted to be. It's like this utopia that never, like that was always so far. And now I will actually go into a revolution that is like really happening. So when I came to Rojava, it was like, it was really, I was like flying around more or less and <laughs> everything was so nice. And it was also, but I think um, also, of course, you see here that the reality of revolution is not like an utopia. So there are also problems we have to face. We have to discuss, we have to solve. There's like problems um, with each other, but also like uh, ideological um, things that you have to maybe yeah, think about in a new way that you have to find new answers, problems in society, problems in the fight. Like, um, so I think it's, yeah, like <laughs> maybe I was more, I had more this utopian view at the beginning. <laughs> and now I'm a little bit more like I, I came I came to revolutionary reality <laughs> that is also, yeah, sometimes um, like more, more real. Um, but yeah, I think um, the way like that we really, that here really is a place of hope and that like the value of women's revelation, the value of revolution, that is really the basis of the living here together and of our struggle. That's definitely that yeah i can connect uh, to what my comrade said as people from the west maybe we are always romanticizing revolutions when they are abroad like really like project all of our hope in there like as my comrade said like i don't know expecting there's this place of utopia and uh, of course it is not revolutions are messy there's a lot of that's what I, that's what i always say is, is there's a lot of that in america because we're like live free yeah. or die here and it's like, oh, yes. I've seen so many revolutions and they're all very, very ugly. Yeah, so revolutions are one of the best places to be in as revolutionaries, of course. But it is also the places where there are contradictions. There are a lot of problems. But what I always say and what I think is the most important thing about the Rojava revolution is how to solve those contradictions. So in Rojava, the society has a really high level and being political educated because it has a long history that even started before the start of the Rojava revolution. Because the Rojava revolution refers like to an older story of a liberation struggle in Kurdistan. So the society is really well educated in sense of you know, political values. Um, but of course they're humans and as humans we always have problems. And now Rojava being attacked from Turkey and being under the embargo because it's a part of Syria, uh, facing like terrorist gangs like ISIS, there's so many problems from the outside that for me it's still like a miracle how this revolution can be while under, uh, while being under so much threat. So this was for me like something that I have to say um, exceed my expectations because I was not aware of before I went here that it's such a difficult situation economically in times of war attacks, also inside of attacks within the revolution, that still the society is able to organize itself. 
Like this was for me something I, I didn't expect. And I think as revolutionaries, we have a commitment of honesty. We need to be honest. We need to be honest with our own mistakes and also with the mistakes of our revolution. If we say, oh, our revolution is perfect, there are not problems, we are just lying to ourselves. And then we're ending up in some what politicians are doing in the so-called Western liberal democracies. So we need to be honest. And what I found in the revolutionary movement here is really an honesty about our own problems. Like I never saw any other movement where own problems. And when I say own problems, it's the problems of the organization, but also individual problems. Like which problems do I as a revolutionary with the personality that I get in capitalist system, these problems I also bring and I also live, like how can we solve them? Like this is something that surprised me when I came here, really to be honest with the problems, to analyze what are your individual problems that you bring here that are maybe, that prevent you from being a, a militant in this revolution and how can we solve them, but also to be honest with the problems in society. And uh, saw a photo of uh, two Shahids, and she was smiling really sweet. And um, I asked her if she knew them, and she said no, but they are friends, they are Hevas. We always have this individualism from Germany. We don't know someone, and so we don't care actually. But they are really like they fight for the same things. They were also Hevas, they were also humans, and they died especially for what they believed in. I wanted to talk a little bit about the philosophy. I've, I'm on the show, I've said several times, I'm not a fan of Marx. I mean, if you write a book called The Jewish Question, I don't think I can be a fan of you. The whole thing about the class struggle, though, I mean, we had revolutionaries in Mexico before him, the old school Zapatistas. I think the ultimate end goal of the class struggle when you get down to it is gender and gender roles. According to the philosophy of Challenge, we have to analyze that like the first slave, also the first colony, and more or less also the first class was uh, the woman that was oppressed. And only because the woman was oppressed, only because of this uh, process, it was possible to establish this power system because it was all on the exploitation uh, of her labor was the basis that men could build up all the system, all the system of occupation, of power, of uh, building up states and also capitalism. So I think, yeah, of course, and it's like still, if you look also today, what is the system like grounded on? I agree on what uh, my friend said. Like if we have a deeper look on the philosophy on which the Rojava revolution is built on, when we say our aim is women's liberation, we don't say that we will make this uh, separately from gender liberation at all. So we don't aim a system led by women where like the oppression is shaped and now women are on the forefront and doing oppression to others. The basic principle of our philosophy is no one is free until all are free. And this is why when we later can talk about democratic confederalism, also like the freedom and the, the right of self-administration of different ethnic groups and religions is really, really important in this revolution. But coming back to the question of women, when we say we want a women's revolution, it basically means that we want to organize the society in a way that women can, for the first time in history, really become free from this patriarchal mindset, from the slave mentality, and also from all the economical factors, from all the material conditions that hold her as a slave. So this is our main aim when we say we want a women's revolution. And also I think like a women's revolution is also not only meaning like to free or to liberate women, but also to liberate men. Like because you no, know, you have this you have the slave mentality of the woman, but you also have this master mentality of the men. And both is creating a system of suppression. So this is like to build up a society with new with values, like where you care for each other, where you're not only doing your own thing and like try to get as much as money or as much as possible, but like actually to look after each other and to build up a world where everyone can live in. The toxic masculinity is real in right now in the West. Very bizarre how it sprung up very recently. And it's like in retaliation to the feminist movements that are going on. And it's like, I think that's something that they don't realize. The reason why you feel so sad, bro, is because you're in this society. Like you, you can liberate yourself from it. Yes, I would like to add something. So um, Abdullah Öcalan, uh, he proposed a theory, which is in Kurdish called Kushtina Zulam. When we translate it into English, it's called killing the dominant man. 
So really, really early, uh, Abdullah Erçalan had the idea that in order to live in a free society, actually in order to reach socialism, we need to kill the dominant man. And this is why really, really early, Abdullah Erçalan, he was really, really, really putting focus on how we can change the man. And how he did it, he did a lot of personality analysis. Like he used this as a method for every revolutionary, for every militant, and this is also now in the Rojava revolution practice, how we can analyze what the history of the patriarchal system until today, how it was manifested in our minds. So um, in the Rojava revolution, I can give you an example. A lot of women, they're giving education to men and they're asking them like questions about their life. For example, uh, what was the difference between you and your sister in the way you were raised up in your family? And in the Middle East, this is really clear. Like in the answer of these questions, you can really clearly see how the different genders were raised. And this education is really aimed to give a critical thinking. So when we're talking about revolution, we can talk about how we can change the mind. But of course, also, we need to create material conditions that also change the life of the society. So when we say we want to kill the dominant man and we want to build up a woman's revolution, we cannot just talk and change our minds. We really need also to create material conditions. One example how this is being reached in the Rojava revolution is the so-called co-chair system. So in every political body, in every council, in every other um, field of, of the revolution, it's always represented by two people by a man and a woman. This, like with this system, we try to prevent that just like something is represented by a man only. And of course, this needs to be accompanied by education of women. Our movement is not like saying, oh, we just have to put women in leading uh, positions and then everything is fine. No, we need to educate women to be able to defend her own free will and to be able to defend herself from patriarchy. But with this co-chair system, which guarantees that women are represented in society and in all political bodies, and on the same way to have education, I think this is a way in which we can really create free male and free female personalities and gender-liberated societies. Yeah, and I think what you already said, like uh, with this education aspect, I think this is really also, if you like look at the West, it's really important that you that you cannot think just putting women in leading positions will change anything actually because if they are just staying still in this male dominated system they will just copy it or continuing it like it's not that how the woman was born is like she has her other free ideas like of course we have another identity but we also have to find this identity again and to liberate ourselves and it's not just working that we say oh now we we will lead this parliament and everything is is different no I think this is also kind of a really liberal way, actually, to look at politics. We look at women in power, especially in the West. I mean, Pakistan had a female leader long before anyone else did. But um, like you look at Margaret Thatcher, Hillary Clinton, and the, these they kind of have these reputations where they're more iron than the men themselves. And I think that's a big problem with the way that we address things because they're compensating for something because they are already perceived as weaker because they're women so they have to go over the edge it's almost like they're they're filling the male gender role almost yes i think and And that that's the big issue so if we're if we're looking at a bigger scale how would the west remedy this issue because it obviously is a uh quite a large issue yeah Actually, I think like we as revolutionaries, also as a left movement or socialist or whatever, like we should ask ourselves, what do we want? Do we want to change the system from its basis or do we want to participate in the system? Because like now women in power positions, they actually, they just participate in the system. So they fight for that they can also be as powerful as men and as rich as men and as oppressive as men. But it's not changing the mentality. And this is also like, I think a mistake that the left movement is doing a lot, that like women are just want to participate. 
they also can be violent and they can also be loud and rude. And I kind of way I can understand it because like they are kind of angry that they did that and they had to face that by their male comrades also for such a long time. But like now, if you want to ask, we really want to change something, then we have to change the system like at all. And we have to change the way how we fight, how we work, how we live. And therefore we have to find our own identity again because we lost it. Like we were grown up and also like we have this historical background that we are kind of in this woman, we are in this slave position. So what do we actually want? We don't want to change the slave mentality in a master mentality. Like we want to finish the slave master uh, contradiction. That's the point. And therefore I think that's the point where we come to, where we have to organize ourselves as women in an autonomous way, because we can only find our way of identity besides the slave identity, this like resistance identity, this uh, fighting identity, this like identity filled with all those really beautiful values when we can organize ourselves. So, and in this autonomous organization, we can actually discuss and analyze how can society besides this patriarchal system looks like and how do we want to live yeah, and I think that's actually an approach also in the West would be really good. Yeah, nothing to add. Completely agree. So, you know, I noticed you didn't say that we should be like making all the kids toys the same gender and stuff like that. You don't, you don't think that's a good way to address it? Like, that seems what everyone here wants to do for it. Uh, no. So I think um, what a big problem is or what also like the the women's movement here in Rojava is, crit is criticizing, like our aim is not to make a genderless society. Like to say, oh, we are all like humans and there is no gender because we say this is actually denying our history and identity. So what the um, movement wants to do here is to reveal the true identity of women. And this means we see women as a category which is a historical and sociological uh, category we analyze it from a like from a historical point of view and there's so much uh, in history how women got oppressed but also where women were leading and uh, taking up resistance that this is something we want to lean on like when you come to rojava the first thing the comrades are telling you you need to find your identity who are you what is a woman what is a woman besides all what patriarchy tried to put on the woman's identity. What is real? What is, what is it to be a woman? And I think this is a big question that is actually not addressed in the Western feminist movements, because like, I think the methods are different. Like, as I said, our method is not to try to, to, try to establish a genderless society. Our uh, method or our aim is to address a society in which women can express their identity freely besides from the slave um, identity. we talk about democracy in the West. I mean, Europe is Europe has amazingly high rates for democracy. Um, how do you address the freedom and democracy where you are? Okay, so how the system here in Rojava is um, the most important uh, political body is so-called commune. So um, how the system here is built up, it's from down to the top. So let's just say we are in a city which is called, let's just take any city of Rojava, Kamishlo, for example. And then uh, you have different neighborhoods. And every neighborhood has, like, let's say, a street. And this one street is organized in a so-called commune. The people there, um, they're meeting in their, commu in their communes, in their councils there. And everything 
important, which is like what they need for their life. For example, the um, petrol, benzene for the cars, like all those things. This is all organized in those neighborhood councils and communes. In all those communes, you always have an autonomous women's structure. So you have a women's um, council, which is organizing autonomously. The next uh, step then is to say, okay, in the neighborhood, we just like as an as a example, Kamishlo, let's say, has then four different uh, councils of um, bigger neighborhoods. So it's the next level where people delegate to the next level and then they're discussing everything which has a wider scale, which is not just organized in the communes, but on the neighborhood level. And then we go up, we go on the city level, then we go on the canton level, and then you have this autonomous administration of North and East Syria. So this is like then the most top um, council that is um, like organizing and administrating um, the needs of the people. And what is really important, it's about administration. It's not about ruling. Like this is really, really important. It's not like a, a, a top to the bottom concept that people are ruling over other people. No, it's from down up. It's like from the communes and um, things that are getting discussed go on next level, next level. And then really um, on the top level, we just have this administrative um, yeah, task of this body. Yeah, and I actually like besides this organizational uh, view, I think like this model really reached the goal that people actually um, seeing their responsibility for their own lives and for the lives of the people next to them again and also for their place where they live for their homeland like they at the end also to defend themselves to organize themselves like to um, like not only seeing political things like something far away but something that is actually like connected with their life at any time and i think uh, what i also want to add like what i also kind of knew I had some new thoughts when I came here. We also, like in the Western world now, we also say like we have democracy or some people say there's a democracy. And, but actually it's more of this, everyone can be what he or what she wants, but as an individual, wide approaches, different opinions. And by that you can actually build the society. I think that's really, really an important point. Um, what I want to add uh, regarding democratic confederalism is that you really have a really vivid civil society. So, for example, when you come to North and East Syria, we say North and East Syria because Rojava is a Kurdish word. It's, it's called West Kurdistan in Kurdish language. But actually, when you look in the territories of the autonomous administration, the territories of the revolution, it's wider. So in a politically correct way, we say North and East Syria to include also other ethnicities, because this is not a revolution just for Kurdish people. This is really important. So when you come to North and East Syria, you see many, many associations, cultural um, associations, cooperatives, like the civil society is organizing itself in so many different ways. Here, they're not just living Kurds and Arabs. You have Armenians, you have different Christian people, you have a lot of indigenous people on this land. And with this democratic system, everyone is guaranteed to organize itself without having to lose their own cultural identity. This is really important. When I was talking about the different level of the autonomous administration, it's always guaranteed that minorities are represented inside there. So it can never be that any decision is made without the participation of the of the different ethnical minorities that live here in North and East Syria. So this system of democratic uh, confederalism not just guarantees the representation of women and different ethnic ethnicities, but really everyone who wants to organize itself with an own identity can organize itself. And this is why sometimes it's really funny when you walk on the street, you can see, oh, here's the Assyrian Association. Here's the Association of the Drivers. Here's the Association of the bread makers, like really, yeah, every group in society that you can imagine has the right to organize itself. Like this is something that really fascinated me in this system here. And I think that's also really interesting. If you look like how the West is looking on the Middle East, it's always this, it's like those 
different cultures that cannot live with each other and we have to build thousands of states for that they can only live in there and not oppress like the middle east is really seeing as like this problem where people cannot live with each other and actually like democratic confederalism is a proposal for a solution for that that says that's brilliant that you have those all those cultural identities those var varieties like it's like a big value and on that we can build up democracy so how how would that scale up and would you say that it's it's uh slow but effective is that how you how you would describe the system <laughs> yes okay talking about time is really different here in northern east syria so the system here sometimes is a little bit slow because it is so democratic and you know people are making jokes also about this because if you just think in a capitalist logic of effectiveness of course, if you have like uh, a state, uh, one president of a state and he makes a decision, it's really fast. So yes, sometimes the system here is a little bit slow because people are discussing a lot. Like really, you will not imagine how much discussion is going on here in Northern East Syria. You always have to think what is most important for you. Is it that you really want to have a radical democracy, a stateless radical democracy, and you lose a little bit maybe of effectiveness or you want to have a top-down uh, system, which is really effective, but without any democratic participation. So yes, I would actually agree on your uh, analysis. And it's also the question how you see this effectiveness. Mm. If you see it, oh, it's like you have to make decisions really fast and then actually no one is caring for it or is only doing it because they are forced to, then we can say, okay, our system is slower, but here the people are discussing so much. At the end, it's the decision they made by themselves. So maybe it's the decision itself is a little bit later, but then like everyone is fine with it. And also really it's according to what they want. So I hear from the free Syrians, internationalists, they're very disconnected, I think. And they just believe a lot of the things that Turkey says. So they say that it's not an inclusive system and that all the minorities there are just tokens for you. They're tokens? What does token yeah. mean? Oh, so token <laughs> is like a token is like it's a it's a it's a phrase that we have here but it's a it's basically it's like I have a black friend so I can't be racist. It's ah yeah yeah okay I understand. Okay. Mm -hmm. So like you say it's like just more like um it's not really true that it's an inclusive system. Like I would really really say like this is not true at all. For example here in northern Syria we have three official languages. It's Arabic, Kurdish, and the Aramaic language from the Assyrian and the other Christian minorities. So everything is in three official languages. Also, of course, you have a lot of areas which are majority Arab population that with the fight against ISIS fall into the territory of the autonomous administration. And of course, you have problems there. Sometimes you have cultural misunderstandings. But what the good thing about the system is, it's led by the people itself. Let's uh, talk, for example, about the city of Raqqa. Raqqa was the so-called capital of ISIS caliphate. When it was liberated, the system of autonomous administration was established by the people of Raqqa itself. It was the Arabic population there who took the initiative, who made the councils. Now it's led by the people themselves. It's not like Kurdish people coming and being in Raqqa and telling them what to do. No, it's the people from Raqqa who are making there. And of course you have, like everywhere, you have people who don't agree with the system. Of course you have it. But I think the question is how we are addressing those people. Do we punish them? Do we exclude them? And maybe do we prevent them from access to something? No, it's not like this. The biggest strength of um, the revolutionary movement here in Rojava is really to try to convince people. It's really like the power of words or the power of action also. Like really to try to make people understand that it's good that they organize themselves. They say, for you, it's better to organize yourself than the Syrian regime is coming and tell you what to do. This power of convincing people is really, really strong in the revolutionary culture here. I agree. Well, talking about uh, punishment is actually very interesting because I'm curious about how punishment is um, dealt with or organized. You or are, that just sort of thing. law enforcement as a whole? Yeah, yeah I'm really happy to talk about bit. this. The Rojava revolution is actually trying to have an alternative justice system. We live in a war zone, so of course we have internal security forces. They're called the Asaish, and they have police-like tasks, but it's not a police. 
Why is it not the police? Because it's not there to protect capital or the state. It's there to protect the people. Um, when we go like on a justice level, I told you about the neighborhood councils. So for every neighborhood, you have also justice committees. They're trying to make an alternative system of justice. We have, for example, a lot of justice academies here where people can educate themselves about a different understanding of justice. Let's make up an example. There's a case of violence against women. So what is happening in Northern East Syria is that they go to the Mala Jin. This is translated in English into the woman's house. This is a place where justice is created, we can say. So the man and the woman, they go there, everyone is being heard, and then together with like the people from this woman's house, a solution is found. And it's with talking, discussion, they're hearing like, okay, why is it like this? They're really trying to find solutions. With this method, actually a lot of problems in society are being solved. But of course, there are also like problems which cannot be solved. And then of course, there are also court cases. There are courts here, but also the court, um, court system is really different. For example, there is never a court with just one judge. It has to be three or five judges and always women need to be part of those uh, judge system. So this is really interesting. Like it's never one person making a final decision. When we look on uh, the system of punishment, um, we need to say, yes, there are also prisons here. Um, uh, and who are who is in prison? For example, um, cases of murder, of, I don't know, um, human trafficking, like those things. And uh, we once went to the justice uh, committee, like the whole of whole Northern East Syria. And I asked them about the, the numbers, like how many people are in the prisons here? And he said like a number, like, I don't know, maybe less than 600 or something like this, which is like an incredible, incredible low number when you think about the whole Northern East Syria. Of course, in this number, it's not the ISIS members included that are here in the prisons. Just on a society scale, prison is seen as really like the last step. It's really first, how can we solve our problems in our community? Uh, when it's related to gender violence, then of course the women's movement is really engaged in this. But um, yeah, the system here is not based on the fear of going, of coming into prison. Like prison is a last step. And as you can see in the numbers, it's really, really, really like really low cases of, of people who are facing prison. Of course, when there is murder or something, then people are getting judged. But like on a smaller scale, like this, this nation state mentality really of punishing people it's it's not like this and actually i think maybe i can add also yeah. like this having prisons is maybe a contradiction for some people from from the left and also it's, for me i can also say like i'm also not a fan of prison but i also see in the reality that the revolution and the society now doesn't have another answer for this problem And that doesn't mean that that's now the solution and it will be forever. It's like there are discussions on it. There is a, like a, still a search for how you can solve these problems in another way. But that's maybe I think this difference between this utopia and this revolution, how it's actually like happening, that there are sometimes things you have to admit that you don't, that you cannot solve it in another way now. And that's also okay if you see it as a problem and you can say by yourself, It's a problem and I see it critical, but I'm, I'm looking for another solution. Yeah. On the topic of prisons, the Daesh prisons are a serious problem. I mentioned this in DMs about how basically I feel like the West has basically just left the bill with something that's totally their fault. Uh, it wouldn't really be there if it wasn't for them. On how much are uh, international citizens that should be repatriated and uh, given fair trials in their own country. Like actually for the men, I don't know the number. Mm -hmm. I know that there are still like uh, 8,000 women and children in the Al-Hur camp that are like not from Syria and also not from Iraq that should be repatriated. And I think there's also, I really don't know now the number of the men, but it's like a high number. <laughs> I think like this is a really, really big problem, this whole dealing with ISIS. And I think it's also not about repatriating. 
It's also about like the states left their Daesh members here and they don't want to get them back. But on the other hand, they're supporting Turkey that is also in the coalition against ISIS that is attacking us permanently and is not giving us a quiet moment to even think about how we can deal with all these ISIS members. And on the other hand, it's also like cutting our resources, making people flee. There are not only like these Daesh camps, there are huge refugee camps that fled from, uh, from Turkey and from Turkish uh, occupation. So I think it's like, we really should see this also from a broader view that it's not only not repatriating, it's also not supporting and also attacking with the self-administration. Yeah, I want to add something to the Daesh prisoners here. So what happened um, when in March 2019, when there was the last battle in Barhus against ISIS, tens of thousands of ISIS members, militants, their wives, the children, they um, they gave themselves, they handed themselves in into the hands of uh, the Syrian Democratic Forces. Then what do you do when you have a lot of like enemies handing themselves into you? They put them in the camps. And from this point on, the autonomous administrations, all the military forces, the Syrian Democratic Forces were constantly, constantly asking the international community for support because Daesh, it's an incredible, incredible amount of people from around the world came to Iraq and Syria to join this terrorist organizations. They are now here. The camps are full. You have really from every different country of the world, you have still the members there. What the autonomous administration proposed, they say, we need to build up an international court here on this land where ISIS committed all those atrocities. But the internationalist community is saying, well, nothing is serious, not a state, so we will not do it. So then the administration, they said, okay, then you need to repatriate uh, your citizens. They are, it's your responsibility to repatriate them and to bring them back in your country and to face justice there. And the states, they didn't act for a really, really long time. They did not take any of them. Like now in the last weeks, like a lot of countries like Australia, Holland, um, Germany. They yeah, are, Germany like, is Germany is the only one that's been actually seems like they're taking anyone at this yes. point. And they are just taking women and children. But here the Daesh prisons are full of men and they're like extremists. They're like Daesh fighters. And something which I want to say is what the country of Iraq is doing. They are like uh, giving death penalty to uh, ISIS fighters. So for a long time, the autonomous administration, although like this is something where really this um, revolutionary ethics really is becoming clear, um, they did not give the Daesh prisoners to Iraq because they would face um, a death penalty there. Like now think about how much atrocities, how like massacres, like the genocide against the Yazidi people here in this land and still the people here, the administration refused to hand over their own enemies to a state who would give them a death penalty. Like from an ethical point of view, they say it's wrong. We will not hand anyone over who will face death penalty. Like this is just like one, um, yeah, one example how uh, here the, the military forces, but also the autonomous administration is dealing with their enemy. And I mean, you all saw the propaganda videos of Daesh. You all saw what they did here. It's not like just like, it's like really like one of the most cruelest enemies we can even imagine. So the big problem, like my comrade said already, with the Daesh prisoners here, we are constantly attacked by Turkey. So our military forces, they really literally need to decide if they want to protect the incredible amount of Daesh members in the prisons and in the camp, or if they pr protect our border by the attacks from Turkey. And when you look in the situation of Afrin, it becomes really clear. During the attack of Afrin, the fight against Daesh was not over. It was still in Derasur. Uh, it was the fight against ISIS. Then Turkey attacked. And it was literally a situation where fighters needed to decide, do I want to stay in Derasur and fight against Daesh? Or will I go to Afrin and protect my people from the occupation 
force of the Turkish state. So this we can really see how Turkey and ISIS actually are not like are cooperating. And every time after this, where there are ISIS attacks here, Turkey is also attacking. See that? That's the Turkish consulate. In America, we have the right to stand here and say, fuck you, Turkey, you fucking fascist bastards. I'm sorry to cuss. I know it's probably not appropriate, but I'm so upset. Listen, you guys need to know something here in America. Anybody that's watching this anywhere else in the world, if you don't stand up for Rajabha, if you don't stand up for democracy, nobody's going to stand up for democracy. Who's going to do it? If you let this democracy fail, all those ISIS fighters in that camp, they're escaping right now. They're getting out right now. And they're coming home. They're coming home to you, you fucking bastards. You know why I say you're bastards? Because you know it's happening and you're not doing nothing. Yeah, I think I also like want to mm. add there's something like, for example, on the prison outbreak in uh, Hesseke this year, what happened in Hesseke, ISIS was getting out of the prison. So our comrades asked for some assistance from the comrades that were in Tiltemir and they came to give help in the struggle in Hesseke. And what this Turkey did, they were bombing those friends that were on their way to Hesseke to support the friends to get Daesh back in prison. So, or another example from the, like you maybe heard about this last security and humanity operation in the camp hall, um, where the camp was like searched and there were some people like put into custom, uh, custom custody. custody, not custom custody. Um, yeah, and actually like this operation should happen uh, way earlier, but the friends just couldn't do it because Turkey was so massively attacking. So that's why this operation was like months later. Maybe you say now, okay, it was some months later. It's not a big problem. It happened at the end. But like in this operation, Yazidian women that were still slaves from Daesh people, they were free, they were liberated. And they were facing even more days and months of slavery, of oppression, of violence, of, of rape, of torture, because like Turkey was attacking. You know, now we say there is no official war. Turkey is now at the moment maybe not having a huge military co uh, campaign coming with ground forces. But what Turkey is using, it's so-called low-intensity warfare. So Turkey in the last month, almost every day, attacked with drones. And you cannot imagine how this like is also, of course, um, influencing the psychology of the society. A lot of our comrades, especially Yepeshe fighters, women who were fighting ISIS, got killed by Turkish drone attacks. We lost so many of our beloved comrades in the last month because Turkey attacked with drones on cars. Just an incredible, incredible, dirty strategy of how to, how to attack and how to make war. You have to think that in Turkey, they just go with their drones and they just put on a button and is killing people. And really in the last weeks, many, many women who were really having leadership roles in this revolution got killed in this cowardly attacks. And this is why, as my comrade says, the military forces here could not prepare the, the operation against Daesh cells in the Al-Hul camp before because Turkey was constantly attacking us. And also maybe adding to this low intensity warfare, it's not only that they are attacking like our comrades, but they are also attacking, they are attacking children, they are attacking civilians. And actually, like, what they want to do is to spreading fear. And they are also not attacking only by drones um, or on the borders. They are also cutting water, cutting electricity. The whole warfare with the goal that the people are in fear. And what are people doing if they are in fear? They are leaving the land. I want to add one example um, that was leaving a really big wound also in the society here. There was a school, UN-affiliated school for girls, where young women, young girls under 18 years old, they were playing volleyball and Turkey attacked them with the drones. And in total, five, it was five, no, five of those young girls died in this attack. Turkey is carrying out a systematic war, not just against our comrades, not just against the military forces of northern Syria, but against the civilians here. This is really, really important. And what my comrades said with cutting off water, we have now a cholera outbreak here in northern Syria. We have had problems with water for so many years 
because one really important water purification station is in the hands of the jihadist mercenaries in the occupied land that Turkey grabbed in the attacks in 2019. So really, Turkey is using every dirty method in trying to crush down this revolution by direct attacks, war, drone attacks, water, electricity, by supporting ISIS, by supporting all those sleeper cell attacks here. You cannot imagine in which difficult situation the, the people are living here. And still, you have such a high commitment of the people. With every martyr that was killed in a Turkish drone strike, all of northern Syria was just on the street saying, you will not make us leave, you will not get us down. This is our revolution. Just alone in the fight against ISIS, we paid with 11,000 martyrs. You need to think that every family here, they have martyrs who fall in the fight against ISIS in every family here. So like the, the commitment and the will of the people to defend their land is really, really huge. So Turkey, of course, is trying to destroy our psychology, but the will and the strength of the people is really so strong. They will never allow that fascist Turkey will come more in our territories. Because of that, it's also making not sense at all to wait for this day X in the Western world. And when this day X is coming, the great war, the great attacks of Turkey, then we will all go on the street and support Kurdistan. We are at war now and we need support now in any way. 11,000 of them died fighting ISIS, 20,000 were wounded. And the United States said, we're with you, we're standing with you. And then suddenly one day after a phone call with Erdogan announced by tweet, Trump reverses that policy. Now you tell me what country in the world will trust the word of the President of the United States. So the Kurds stepped up when nobody else would to fight ISIS. If we abandon them, good luck getting anybody to help America in the future. So I just looked up whether there was any media coverage of uh, the incident that you mentioned with the five girls that died. Mm -hmm. uh, there is zero. So, um, with that being said, do you think that Western media coverage would do anything? Do you think people would care? Do you think people would, would step up and actually do something? Or do you think that the media's coverage of Kurdistan being sullied by um, sexualization of the fighters and, and mm. whatnot has uh, basically destroyed their reputation on this uh, yeah. NATO interest is also another part of that as well. I think if there would be media coverage, so of course it's also the question of in which way, but I think people would care because people normally care if children are getting killed. People are normally care if maybe, though I can also say now, our society is really in a bad con condition, so maybe they would only care for an hour and then they will forget it again, but at least they will wake up maybe for a moment and say and think like, oh, this is really not okay with what is, what is going on there. I think that's also the reason why Western media are not covering it at all. It's all only about like the Ukrainian-Russian war and like the war here is like really not existing at all. And why is it not existing? Because Turkey is such an important member of NATO and also for the European Union, especially like a really, really important ally that they don't want to lose at all. Yeah, I want to add that, yes, we need journalists here. We need critical media coverage, like really and the problem is that a lot of journalists, they're not coming here because it's a war zone. We see that a lot uh, of journalists who are covering here, they're actually in Turkey or they are in Lebanon. They're not here. And so this is why it's so important for journalists to come here and to really co to cover this conflict. And as my comrades say, if you now look how the whole world is now having the attention on Ukraine and uh, Russia, like you need to think Turkey has such a strong role in the NATO that it's just not known because like Erdogan is really clever in using the uh, Russia's war against Ukraine. He's really clever in using this. And in the shadow of this war, he can just use the most dirtiest, dirtiest methods. And this is happening in front of our eyes. We have the proof. We have the footage. Here in Serikania in 2019, Turkey was using white phosphorus. We have doctors who made official documents. And everyone knows it, but it's just not talked about because Turkey is a NATO member. So yes, we need courageous 
journalists, we need media to cover this and to talk about this. I mean, just look at, you know, when uh, the sarin attacks, you know, you had chemical inspectors on there, like sarin degrades extremely quickly. Like they were there yeah. quick enough to get a sample of sarin, you know? Also going into Ukraine, there was the Finland and uh, Sweden joining. Basically one of the conditions for them joining is Turkey gets yes. to fuck over Rojava. So actually this is a really, really sad uh, repetition in history of Kurdistan and the Kurdish people that it's always like Kurdish people being like um, almost in like a game and powers, Western powers are just like sacrificing them for everything. And so like what happened when now uh, the latest uh, NATO application from Sweden and Finland, it was like really, as you said, to sacrifice Rojava and to let just Turkey give like the, the allowance to Turkey to do whatever they want in northern East Syria. And I mean, Turkey is still aiming to occupy the land here. Like what they always aim and what they say is like they want to establish a so-called uh, safety zone, which just means like to to um, put a 30 kilometer long strip on the whole northern border border between Turkey and Syria. And what is the plan of Turkey is to make a demographic change to make those uh, areas empty of Kurdish population and what they already did in their occupied areas to really settle there the families of the jihadist mercenaries that they're using for ground forces for their invasions here. Yeah, a project of demographic change that Turkey aims to do here. Would you classify that as uh, a maybe if not a complete but a partial act of genocide yes, yeah of definitely course, do. definitely i think that's also a point that really should be understood in the west that it's not like a normal war it's like a genocide yeah, the exactly. aim is to eliminate the kurdish people like to kill them but also like to kill the culture and kill this kurdish identity a genocide on really different layers and not only the Kurdish people also the Yazidian people like actually everyone who's not <laughs> Turkish yeah adding to this we talked about the Christian minorities here like for example in the Tiltema region it's like really the indigenous land of a lot of Christian uh, people and Turkey is constantly attacking there as we speak now I'm sure there are attacks on the front line in Tiltema so um, the Christian uh, population, they, they were facing so many massacres there. And um, I want to give one more example on how Turkey was supporting ISIS. In 2015, ISIS was attacking the Assyrian and Christian villages in Tiltema. Um, Turkey has power over the uh, water because they have big dams on their side and they can regulate the water flowing in the rivers into Syria. When ISIS attacked Tiltema in 2015, what Turkey did is Turkey opened the dams so that suddenly there was a big flood and the self-defense forces of Tiltema, they could not reach each other and the civilians could not flee. So the massacre that ISIS committed on the Christian minority living in Tiltema was actively supported by Turkey. We could give you so many examples of how Turkey were really supporting ISIS this is just one of them, but really to say like this mentality of genocide, of course, is against the Kurdish people, but also against the Christian minorities. And of course, also against others who are supporting the system here. It's a genocide against the Kurdish people, against Christian minorities, but of course, also against the project of the Rojava revolution itself. And I think like you can really also say because of that, that war actually was never over here. It was constantly and maybe like it changed from ISIS to Turkish state. But the aim is to kill the people here, to kill their identity. And uh, it's one um, aggression. How many uh, maybe percentage wise of the fighters are international? Like not a lot. <laughs> the YPG and the YPG forces, as well as the Syrian Democratic Forces, they don't need the help of internationalists to come. 
It's more that internationalists are coming because they want to learn from the revolutionary struggle here. So let's say it, the Yepeche does not profiting in a military way that internationalists are coming, but we are profiting in learning the methods of the revolutionary movement, the ideology, because we as internationalists, we saw that we have contradictions in our countries of our struggles that we could not solve and where the revolution in Rojava can give us answers. So the aim of internationalists coming here is getting to know the revolution, getting to know the ideology and spreading it into the world. Yeah, but I also think it's about this, what uh, the comrade said, but also to strengthen this value of internationalism. Like internationalism was always like a big value in this revolution. But our task is also to come here and to share our histories, actually the history of resistance in the world and yeah, to be part of this internationalist struggle. When it comes to internationals, I think I saw a lot more when it was, they weren't really there. Because like I said, it wasn't until Afrin until I really got what was going on there. I was covering it because they were fighting ISIS. And I think back then there was a lot of internationalists. I, I know a lot of Americans who went there to fight ISIS, but very few of them came back with the ideology. I know one guy who did, though, a really good friend of mine. Do you plan on returning and bringing the lessons that you have home with you, or do you plan on staying forever? <laughs> um, at least for me, I can say that I, at one point, I plan to um, go back and also to spread the idea. Um, but actually, I think like also times changed a little bit. In the time of Afrin, there were still a lot of fighters here that came actually to fight ISIS. There were not understanding them as revolutionaries or even as leftists. They came here because they wanted to fight ISIS. And I think, still, I think that when they came here, they also got education and they saw the values of this revolution. But it's another point. If you want to go from out of this point, you join this, this fight, or if you come here because of the revolution. And now when Turkey is attacking, who is coming changed a lot. Because people are normally like now are already more connected to the revolutionary struggle or at least connected to some socialist, anarchist, communist ideas. Yeah. And of course, there were a lot of international fighters and there are also a lot of internationalist matters. I think it's about uh, something between 16, 60 or 17 international martyrs. And that's a huge number to see only on this number, how many thousand of people were fighting here and dying here, it's really a small amount. I want to add something to our internationalist martyrs. As Yepeche, like as woman, I can give you some examples. As Shehid Ligerin, she came from Argentina. En esta Turquía tiene un rol fundamental, es el protagonista de este conflicto. No olvidemos que Turquía es la segunda potencia de la OTAN. Entonces Turquía una y otra vez a través de diferentes momentos va adaptando estas políticas de genocidio. Ahora es el Estado Islámico, pero ha pasado por diferentes momentos. She came from Argentina uh, to Rojava and she became a martyr here. And of course, Shahid Helin, who was really a big symbol for a lot of us, who was a young anarchist friend uh, from the UK who came here and she was killed in Afrin by Turkey. And what is really important when we talk about those Shahids, for example, Shahid Helin, Shahid Helin did not come here to protect other people. She came here because she saw this revolution as her own revolution. And this is something really important when it comes to internationalism. We are not coming with a charity mindset to protect others. No, we see this revolution as women, as our revolution, and this is why we defend it. And this is why we are willing to sacrifice. Because for us, the Rojava revolution is really something uh, on a historical um, analysis, one of the projects in which really a stateless democracy where women's emancipation and women's liberation is at the center and it's working, it's happening now. It's not something in the history books. It's happening now. And this is why so many people from all over the world are coming to Rojava because they see really hope here. And this is why we can also call to all internationalist people to revolutionary people, people like feminists, people from ecological struggles, anarchists, communists, to read and learn about the Rojava revolution and to come here to participate. You can participate as part of Yepeche and Yepeche International, but also like in many different works in the society. So really to, to see this as a historical chance to come here. And if you cannot come here, defend the values wherever you are. 
because when Rojava can give so much hope, then we need to defend it. Like as revolutionaries worldwide, it's our task to defend this revolution by any means necessary. So I joined because I wanted to support the revolution and because I wanted to participate in the uh, in the revolution of women that is being built up here and fight and join also the weaponized fight against the forces of fascism and the enemies of the revolution. And so now I'm very happy and proud to be going to Afrin to be able to do this. Um, the attacks of the Turkish state against the revolution and uh, against the Kurdish people and the people of Kurdistan is are very shocking and heavy and I'm happy to join my friends uh, to defend ourselves and our revolution uh, against these enemies. Why don't you tell everyone what's what's next for you, uh, how to actively get involved, uh, where should they go to read more and things like that? First of all, there's a lot uh, of social media going on, uh, social media work going on by internationalists, but also by the local people here. So really on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, you can find a lot of people. Maybe we can write this uh, to you and you can put it in the show notes. Um, and also read theory, read political theory, like uh, Abdullah Öcalan after he was kidnapped in the international conspiracy and when he was like uh, kept in isolation in the prison in Imrali, he was writing like really a huge like manifesto. Um, I can just like recommend everyone to, to read his political analysis because this is really the ground foundation on which the Rojava revolution is built on. And um, if you want to come, um, really we invite everyone to really see it as a historical chance to really get to know how radical democracy with women's liberation at its, its core values is practiced. So just an invitation to everyone to come to, to see it with your own eyes, how it is to be in this revolution. Yeah.